Hey, this is Nick DiMatteo from Music Is Not A Genre. I just wanted to take a minute to talk to you about the service I use to record and distribute my podcasts. If you haven't heard about Anchor, let me tell you from experience, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Here's why. It's free. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. So please take a moment out. If you are planning to create, record, and distribute podcasts, take a look at Anchor. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Hey, I'm Nick DiMatteo, and welcome to video number 76 in audio, season four, episode nine of Music is Not a Genre. And since I love numbers so much, I'll clue you in on another number. I have way too many numbering systems. Uh, I don't know who else would ever keep track of them except for me, but I enjoy it. So here goes. This is the uh, 250th entry in my blog. Uh, what does that mean? So if you watched or listened to the first episode of this season, I have mentioned that this all started as a text and photo blog way back in January 2016, which whatever that entry was, number one, and I've got a record of all of it. I'm, I, I'm thinking of publishing a book of uh, some of the writing that is associated with all of this. And even as it morphed into a video and then audio podcast, I kept track of that. And this is officially in that lineage, the 250th entry. So congratulations to something, the number 250, and welcome to the party that we're having here. Uh, this week's episode, uh, I will be resuming a series that I started, I believe, last season. It's a mini-series within this uh, Music Is Not A Genre called Death Is Dumb. And for those of you watching, you can see that this week it's on the band Soundgarden, and anyone who knows their history will understand why. And so, really, let's just get right to it. Death is Dumb, Volume 7, Soundgarden, the epic voice of modern opera. So, if you've tuned into any of my other Death is Dumb volumes, you know that I have a certain take on death in general, but in particular death in the music world, because that's what this is about. You're welcome to go back and listen to those or watch those and kind of get an idea of what my take is on that, but you may pick it up just based on how I'm talking about all of this. And there's no spoiler here to say that the reason why Soundgarden is the featured band for Volume 7 here of Death is Dumb is because of Chris Cornell's death in 2017. Before we get to that, let's get to the other part of that title, the epic voice of modern opera. So I've said this before. I don't remember what po podcast it was a part of, but I'm sure you can find it. And that is that if there was one element of instrumentation that is the most important to me when it comes to music, it's the voice. So we're talking, obviously, uh, not instrumental music. Any music which includes a vocal, if 
it's a voice that I like, that I mesh with, that, that, that clicks for me, that has a certain sound and delivery and emotional content, a certain, certain technique or abandonment of technique or whatever, you, the expression, the vocal expression moves me, then I will be into that band, assuming the rest of the stuff is something that I consider quality or that I like, you know. Uh, there, are, there are some great vocalists out there on top of music that maybe isn't my speed. I would appreciate the vocalist, but might not be into that band, let's say. But the opposite of that, or the reason why I say it is, if there is a band out there, and there are many, that has just incredible chops, just every, every musician is incredible on their instrument, they could have the best production. They could even have great songs. If I don't click with the vocalist, I probably won't click with the band. I, I again, could admire them and respect them and say, hey, you know, I love, uh, I love what you do on a certain level, but they wouldn't be a hard artist. And if you know music is not a genre, you know what a hard artist is. And that, again, is because it is the voice that does it for me. And here's a couple of Perfect examples. So people like all kinds of voices. You could like a Tom Waits with that kind of raspy, booming, you know, uh, or going further back, Louis Armstrong and that. You could like um, a John Anderson from Yes and people who sing like, way at the top of anybody's register. And uh, that's wonderful as well. You can like middle of the road voices, uh, mid-range voices, uh, whatever you, you know you want to call it. But we all have our preferences, and there is no rule about those preferences. Two bands that, to me, have voc the vocalists don't sound the same in in any particular way, but they have similar qualities. Would be the Cure and the Smashing Pumpkins. Why? Because their vocalists have uh, kind of a bright pitch to them, and there's a little bit of uh, nasal quality to, to them singing, but they both have a full expression, full emotional expression, a, you know, range of expression with what they're singing, and a command of their instrument. I happen to love both of those bands, in particular The Cure, but also Smashing Pumpkins, in large part because those vocalists really do it for me. On the other hand, there are other people who will listen to that and consider the vocals whiny or, or too nasal or whatever other negative connotation you want to throw in there about those vocals, those vocalists. And that is just a matter of taste. There's somebody who could maybe even like the song, let's think of a real popular one, like Friday I'm in Love or uh, Today from Smashing Pumpkins or 1979. And they may bop to the songs but not like the band in particular. And I would bet, uh, you know, $1,000 that I don't currently have, well, that it would be because of the vocalist. Another, another example on the other side, Billie Eilish, just lush arrangements in a very minimalist way, electronic. The, the way it's produced is reminiscent of some other older electronic music that I happen to really like. I think Phineas is a great producer in his own way. I think their lyrics are compelling, or her lyrics are compelling. I think that her voice is, is, is quality and conveys a certain level of emotion. But 
her voice doesn't do it for me. There's a certain way that she expresses herself and the, and a certain tone that while objectively it's, it's, a, it's as good as any other great you know, vocalist out there, it's not my sound. And because I think in large part those songs are very well written and well produced, my contention is if the vocals were different or the vocalist was different, there's a chance that I would click more with that music. And that, again, is not a judgment whatsoever because they're, you know, clearly Billie Eilish is doing quite well and has uh, you know, more fans than I can count. And that's wonderful. It's, it is a matter of opinion. It's a matter of taste. But it's all to say that vocals do it, which brings me to Soundgarden. One of the handful of mega, mega acts associated with grunge that changed the face of music when they grew in popularity. And to this day, people still influenced by those bands. You can, you know, uh, these are bands that may contend that they are not grunge or not, have not always been grunge. That's fine. We know genres are labels. They don't really mean anything other than an expedient. But uh, Smashing Pumpkins, uh, Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Alice in Chains, even Stone Temple Pilots, some of whom I've profiled already, some I will be profiling, and Soundgarden, they're the big ones. I may be forgetting one or two, but they're the big, or if you think of grunge, you think of one of these bands. And yet each of them had a different sound. There is, sure, some similarities between all of them, with the crunchier guitars, interesting guitar voicings, let's say, or chords, uh, introspective lyrics, lyrics that aren't afraid to get dark, a uh, certain kind of singing that's kind of out there in your face, in each in their own way. Uh, a band that I would link tangentially to Soundgarden it would be Alice in Chains for the main reason that they both started in the mid-'80s as primarily just straight up metal bands with different inflections of, of metal for each of them. In Alice's case, I, I liken it like this. When you, you know, if you had to say that each of those bands, each of those two bands were uh, some kind of a weapon or instrument, when you listen, when I listen to Alice in Chains, I think of a knife. The things they do cut through. When I listen to Soundgarden, I think of a bludgeon or a hammer because it's just so powerful. And even though both of them had metal origins and the music pounded in many ways, like, like I said, I think Alice in Chains music cuts through and pierces you and Soundgarden just smashes you. But there's a difference between what they did and metal, or there became a difference. Early on, there wasn't that much of a difference. So when I was listening to Ultra Mega OK and Louder Than Love recently, I was struck by how metal it sounded, just so, so, so metal. And, and yet, you know, Soundgarden also had elements of punk, post-punk, 
and classic rock, in particular 70s rock. Eventually they would throw in uh, psychedelic, they would throw in more progressive elements with odd time signatures and chords and you know that Kim Thale, genius, would come up with, and certainly even pop music in, as their songwriting uh, grew and expanded and improved. And really what makes them, what made them incredible was that mix of styles that I just mentioned. The songwriting, the live performance, clearly, and again, Kim Thale's genius. Really, the band was motored by Kim Thale and Chris Cornell in large part, even though other people, Matt Cameron and such, uh, Ben Shepard played large roles in their own ways and, you know, various times. Those two were really the kind of beating heart of the band. Now that's what makes them incredible. What makes them legendary, and here it is, back to the theme here, is Chris Cornell. And let's not forget, he was a great songwriter, whether it was with Soundgarden or Audio Slave or his own solo work, or even Temple of the Dog, which, you know, what a great song that, that one hit. Uh, so songwriting for sure, but yeah, let's face it, it's his voice. It's his voice that makes them legendary. I would say that he is, I don't think any voice in the last 40 years has come close to being as epically powerful yet nuanced and beautiful as Chris Cornell's. Other people might be in his league in other ways or with parts of that or, or better at other things in a different way, different kinds of voices, but no one has been able to do what he did I think in the last 40 years, and I stop right there because you go beyond that and you get somebody like uh, Robert Plant from Led Zeppelin, clear predecessor. And I have some, you know, comments about that a little bit later on. But I can't like, I would like you to tell me, comment. Can you think of another voice in the last 40 years that stands up to Chris Cornell's? And this is why I say in my text below, that Soundgarden's music, because of him and, and other, you know, the progressive elements and the, and the power and the range, the expansiveness, is what modern opera should be. And if you are a Patreon patron, patreon.com slash music is not a genre, thank you for being here with me, then you will have seen my Q&A, my mega Q&A with my father, Nicky DiMatteo, and I mentioned in that interview, something that I believe I mentioned before, but I'm not sure, and that is that I'm not a huge fan of modern opera performances. And it's because I think most people who perform opera and classical music in general treat it like it's a museum piece. Like the most important thing is technical precision at the expense of emotion. And we forget that opera was always meant to be driving emotional performance work, show that was popular music, popular stage when it was debuted. And we forget that because most modern opera singers and frankly, most singers in general spend way too much time sweating their technique. Don't sweat the technique. Let the emotion come out. And you can hear that in Chris Cornell's development. 
And, and then what I found interesting was that when he started singing, he was younger and whatever other reasons there were, his voice didn't have that much of a bottom. It sounded a whole lot like other metal bands of the early 80s and even some hair metal bands with the, the power certainly there and, and great singing, but very high pitched, you know, that screechy. And I don't mean that in a negative way. And it wasn't until later albums where his voice started to drop, where he, he expanded, he found his bottom, however you want to say it, where he kept that upper range, but but it opened up to the point where the Chris Cornell that we all know and love today emerged. And when that happened, that's when, uh, one reason why it went on full on opera, the emotion, this running the full, full dynamic spectrum, you can whisper and then scream Technically soundy, you know, every album, they all got better and better. And by the time they were in their prime and even after, Chris Cornell's voice just could do no wrong. And Kim Thales playing and all and all of that. But not confined by any rules. Not say, well, I can only sing a certain way. Or if I elide on one note, then I have to do the whole takeover again. Whatever, however you want to put it. Cornell was able to convey convey complete abandon and total control all at the same time. And because they also had such strong progressive elements, odd time signatures, odd chords, it gave them even more of an epic and, uh, and to me, operatic sound. So, you know, quick rundown. Like I said, those first two albums, just so metal and punk. And they're like a punk Zeppelin. They were like a punk Zeppelin in those first two albums. Didn't sound a whole lot like they would sound, except for a few songs here and there. One in particular, Smokestack Lightning, the cover song that they did on Ultra Mega OK, just like with Red Hot Chili Peppers' early cover tunes, because they had the freedom to interpret somebody else's song with strong songwriting before their stuff had gotten up to that speed, they allowed it to t you know take them wherever they wanted it to go. And those covers, early cover tunes were more like their later sound than their originals. It gave them that freedom to explore. And to me, they landed on some of their components of their later sound in something like Smokestack Lightning, the way Red Hot Chili Peppers did with Higher Ground or, you know, if you want me to stay. Louder Than Love was still so metal, but it had whispers of the future, little things here and there. It wasn't really until Bad Motor Finger that they... Uh, shook that metal mantle to my mind uh, and became something else, became their version of grunge and just became Soundgarden, like the Soundgarden. And what's funny is I was listening to the first two albums and some of the EPs and I started writing notes and saying, well, that was the album that, that catapulted them, Bad Motorfinger, you know, so some changes must have happened. And I just, uh, with question marks next to them, said, well, it was probably this change, this change, this change, this change. And when I listened through, that's exactly what it was. That's exactly what it was. And those things are Chris Cornell's voice opening up the bottom end. Uh, they got more progressive. They got more psychedelic. They allowed some of that to trickle in. They, their songwriting just took a leap especially lyrically, but even with the, the you know, chord structures and things like that, they, they allowed elements of pop to come in. Uh, I mean, I think Outshined is probably the first song of theirs that I remember ever hearing. And 
I don't remember a whole lot of it other than the driving, you know, slow to mid-tempo beat, the, uh, the vocals, of course, and the line, feeling Minnesota, something California, feeling Minnesota, and the melody. And it's because the songwriting was really just getting better and better. Uh, perfect example of all of that stuff coming together for them on this album was the song Searching With My Good Eye Clothes. I love that song. Absolutely love that song. They only did three other albums, two in their classic period and then a kind of a comeback. And what's funny is I was talking about this band just randomly with a bandmate of mine over the weekend. And he said that his favorite Soundgarden album was Down on the Upside. And I honestly, at the time, couldn't remember which was which. And, you know, I can't remember what I said, but what he said was he believes that usually the first album you hear of a band is your favorite. Now I say yes and no to that. I say, I say yes because it does happen sometimes and it absolutely happened for me with Soundgarden that my favorite album of theirs to this day is still super unknown. And that's because it did everything that I would want a Soundgarden album to do and it came at a time where I, was, I had been primed by Bat Motorfinger and was ready to hear something like that and primed by other bands at the time, Pearl Jam, Nirvana, etc., Alice in Chains. And it was songs like My Wave, Black Hole Sun, Spoon Man, and Fell on Black Days, which I'm gonna mention again later, that I listened to, and, and, and of course the whole rest of the album, and I was like just completely blown away. Not just by the songwriting and the vocals, but again, those progressive elements. The fact that they could throw in odd time signatures and, and odd chords and still make it cohere as songs and as an album and not kind of, you know, spill over into that indulgent progressiveness that can happen sometimes and that certainly happened with a lot of progressive, like full-on progressive rock bands. I have always loved music that adds progressive elements in that way, very openly, but is not necessarily considered overall progressive. And Soundgarden absolutely qualifies for that. But I think my friend's comment was also, not, I, I also don't agree with it because there have been plenty of times where that did not happen for me. So with, let's say, a good uh, example would be Smashing Pumpkins since we're in the grunge realm. It wasn't until Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness that I that I really fell in love with them and I had heard the albums prior to that and absorbed them. But that one, again, became my favorite, blew me away. It wasn't until In Utero that I fell head over heels for Nirvana, even though I had certainly absorbed Nevermind and I think later on Bleach, but, but certainly Nevermind. So I don't think it always happens that the first album you, you hear of a band is your favorite, but I think it's the first album you fall in love with that's your favorite because I, I fell in love with other albums from those bands or from other bands. You know, let's say the Beatles, my first favorite was probably Sgt. Pepper's. That is not the case anymore. Depending on the year and the decade, it could be Abbey Road for a long time or Rubber Soul or Revolver for a long time or White Album quite frequently. And it bounced back between really those four would be would be my favorites. They weren't the first ones that I heard, 
and honestly, not even the first ones that I fell in love with. So there are caveats to all of this, but I do find it interesting that someone else could say, like my friend down on the upside, pointing here like a weatherman to those of you who aren't able to see, uh, that it was his favorite album, because for him, it did everything that he thought a Soundgarden album should do, and I think it was the first one he heard, and so he associates it with that, you know. Now, I only have, as you can see, these two albums on CD, Super Unknown and Down on the Upside, probably because Ultra Mega OK, Bad Motor Finger, uh, a little too early for me and what I was listening to. After that, they broke up for a really long time, and when they came out with their final album, King Animal, in 2012, as you all know, hopefully, I stopped buying CDs like the year before that. So even though I would have heard it back then, I don't have it here. That's just a little side note, you know. And I guess the only other thing to say about this is to let's get back to the theme of this little series, this little mini series I have here. And that is that somebody like Chris Cornell, one reason why vocalists like that are my favorite, whether they have his power or they sing in a completely different way is because he was able to convey both the, the angst and anger and vulnerability to struggle and triumph. And, and his lyrics were both kind of, uh, you know, vaguely poetic, but also blunt. That's not easy to do. And he, he conveyed both a weakness and the strength to endure, which is what we all thought was happening until 2017. And it was a, it was a shocker. And here's what I'll say about that. Yes, Kurt Cobain dying, shocker. Lane Staley, yes. Jim Morrison, Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, all of those people, shockers. But not as much of a shock, and I'll tell you why, because they were, st they were all still young, which, which is the reason why they, it was a shocking death but in the middle of whatever demons they were struggling with, at, in some cases at the height of struggling with those demons. So you could kind of in some ways see it coming. When you get to somebody like a, a, a Scott Weiland from a previous Death is Done episode, or Chris Cornell, they struggled as well and they continued to struggle, but they got to a point, and I think in particular Chris Cornell, in particular, got to a point where you thought, They've conquered the main, the kind of the big demons. They might still have some struggles, but they're going to kind of mellow out and go into that elder statesman of rock, you know, uh, the way you thought maybe Philip Seymour Hoffman, Hoffman would age into a, a, this wonderful seasoned middle-aged and then older actor and be a legend. As well, he, you thought that he had kind of conquered the, the main bulk of the demons, so the fact that, you know, even Chester Bennington is similar, you know, they died at not a young age when you thought they were out of the woods, when you thought they were, you know, pretty stable. I think it hits even harder. It hurts even more because you want somebody to grow old with you, whether you know them or not. If it's somebody you love for whatever reason, you want them to grow old with you. And, you know, he didn't. And it sucks. It sucks mostly for his family, his kids his friends, the band, but it also sucks for the fans. It also sucks for all of music in general because we lost his voice, we lost his words. We really, we lost that beacon of a voice, godlike voice that we'll never hear again in real time. And it 
sucks. It is one reason why death is dumb. But all of this has had an impact and, and they continue to have an impact, thankfully. And his voice continues and listen to Euphoria Morning, a solo record. I'm going to be profiling Audio Slave in conjunction with Velvet Revolver in a future episode. And if you know those bands, you'll understand why. So I'm not gonna go into them here, except to touch on the fact that wherever Chris Cornell took his voice, it was amazing. And, and yet, of any of those, it's Soundgarden that had the biggest influence on me. And it's not something you can hear readily in all of the work that I do. But I've certainly delved into harder music and you know, kind of metal tinge or punk or however you wanna call it, and have thrown progressive elements into a lot of what I do in various ways, but there's a particular song that I always associate with Soundgarden when I think of them and think of my music. And that is off of my EP when I was going just under the name Nick before I formed Rec. It's an EP called Your EP. And there's a song on there called Xylophone Ways, which of course, I'm uh, now that I'm doing something new here, I'm tacking that onto the end of this podcast or close to the end, as well as uh, always, the, you know, the link is down there to my Bandcamp page, but it's also everywhere, Spotify, Apple, etc. Actually, no, this one is not. This one is on uh, SoundCloud and my Bandcamp page, and that's it, because it was never officially released, so you're getting a treat here. And the reason why Xylophone Ways is something I associate with Soundgarden is it is a pop, rock, punk, metal song with some interesting chords here and there, but more than that, two main things, which is a range of emotion in the vocals, which goes from kind of you know soft and uh, intimate to blasting out in the choruses, and it changes time signature three times. There's an intricacy of rhythm that happens in the song in general. And I know and I remember that it was probably listening to Spoonman and things like that that influenced me to write a song like this in the first place. So when you get to the choruses and you hear my booming voice singing them out, when you, when you hear the lyrics and hear how there is a, a poetry to them, but there's a bluntness to them, uh, which I always like kind of plain spoken things, but, but with a little bit of flourish in there in this case. That is a sound guard influence. When you get past the second course and you uh, listen to, is it the second? Well, when you, when you get to the solo, if you don't hear Soundgarden in that solo section, then you don't know Soundgarden, basically. And I urge you and would love for you to listen to this song and tell me what you think of it. But before I end, I'm gonna throw in an even another little bonus, which is, again, uh, the bottom of the text, another link and this link is to a live performance that I did last year as part of an acoustic solo tribute to grunge music where I did some of my music in conjunction with one song from most of the main bands from that period, Nirvana, Smashing Pumpkins, Pearl Jam, and Soundgarden. And the song I chose for that from them was Fell on Black Days. So at the end of this video, please stay tuned because what's coming after my normal sign-off is first, Xylophone Ways. Please listen to that. And then second, the live video acoustic performance of Fell on Black Days. And uh, I hope you enjoy it.
And if you do, please seek out the entire full grunge tribute, which is on patreon.com slash music is not a genre. I think you'll enjoy that as well. Uh, if you, whether or not you are a member of my Patreon family, you can also support me over at anchor.fm slash music is not a genre. That's the audio portal. Any donation there would help so much. Uh, and of course, youtube.com slash Nick is where you can see almost everything, including this right here. Do you remember Soundgarden? Were you a fan of Soundgarden? Did you like Chris Cornell's voice or is, is he more in that category of somebody whose voice uh, just doesn't click with you? Do you uh, love other bands? Are there other bands where you love those bands because of the voice or voices? And you know that for sure. Or maybe you didn't think of it, but you're like, oh, maybe that's the reason why. And if someone else was the lead singer of that band, you might not like them as much. Or are there other bands you can't stand because of the lead vocalist? What do you think of death, huh? There's a big one. Let me hear your thoughts on that and thoughts on everything, whether it's in the comments section here on YouTube or straight to me on Patreon or anywhere else. I always want to hear what you have to, to say and think and feel because as always, my objectives here are music, conversation, and connection. Thank you so much for watching and listening and clicking and sharing and subscribing and donating and all of the things that you do here for Music Is Not A Genre and for little old me, and uh, stay tuned for two songs, and I'll talk to you next week. Get it over here, would you, honey? Hold it gently in your hands. Sit it down here right in front of me. I want to see you play it now. I want to see you play it now So hard one more time to show
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.